Hey everyone, I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with Josh. I had so much fun talking to Josh. Josh is the founder and CEO of SeamlessMD. SeamlessMD is a patient engagement platform which is used by numerous hospitals, including Stanford Health. It reduces the patient length of stay, reduces readmission rate and costs. They have raised over $7.5 million in funding so far. Josh has won numerous awards, including the Digital Health Executive of the Year by Digital Health Canada, Forbes 30 Under 30 in Science and Healthcare, the Canadian Top 20 Under 20, TD Canada Trust Scholar, the Creative Destruction Lab alum, and he's also an alum from the Next Canada. He was the chair of the Canadian Medical Association's Innovation Council, and he was also on the advisory group to the Office of the Chief Health Innovation Strategist for the Ontario Ministry of Health. He has also served on the board of directors at Chad Valley and a startup advisor to Northeastern University. Josh is intelligent, humble, and possesses incredible grit and perseverance. We talk about his childhood, his journey from an interest in coding to medical school, and then in being a founder. We discuss Chad GPT, AI and healthcare, the future of private healthcare in Canada, raising money for his startup, and how 90% of the VCs he met initially said no. We also get into his end goal in life and with a startup. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Before we get started, I do have one simple ask. If you enjoy this podcast and this channel, please subscribe and it will help support the channel even more. Thanks so much for listening and watching everyone. Hey Josh, thanks so much for being here today. I've been really looking forward to this. I think let's go back in time and start at your childhood. Our childhood defines who we are to a fairly big extent. Talk me through your childhood and what are some learnings you took from your childhood to now and what are some things you had to unlearn from it? Yeah, I would say for me, a couple of things. So one is um, I've always been very much a builder. Like I won't, I won't say I've always been an entrepreneur per se, but I've always been very much uh, a builder. So for me, you know, when I was 11, uh, the internet was still kind of new, but I had a, a friend in school who got really into building websites. So then I started learning how to use, and I'm going to date myself, like Microsoft front page to build a website. And then from there, I started learning how to do basic coding with HTML. And so, you know, by the time, like I was in high school, and, you know, my teachers had no idea, like, what it took to build a website. Like, I was, like, building websites for school projects. And that, back then, that was amazing. So, um, did that. And then, you know, when I got to high school, up until then, I had been very much uh, academic-oriented. So, like, very much focused on grades and school and all that. Um, but it was in high school when I really started to, I think, break out of my my shell from a social skills, um, interpersonal skills point of view. And so I think going again back to being very much a builder, I started really getting uh, not only involved in my community, but in, in building stuff. So I started, you know, school clubs and and nonprofit groups and things like that. And that really got me exposed to leadership and teamwork and communication and public speaking. Um, and so I think I, you know, went into school being very academically inclined and then graduated still, I mean, caring about academics, but became, becoming much more of a well-rounded person. Um, and then, and then going from there. Interesting. 
I'm trying to put you in a box and maybe I shouldn't because I'm finding it incredibly difficult. As you said, you're a builder. You look at things uh, as a builder would from first principles, breaking things down, but you're also getting to public speaking, which, and, and trying to fit socially. Those are two different people in most people's eyes. How did you go about marrying the two? And which one do you enjoy the most? Do you enjoy the socializing, public speaking part of your life? Or do you enjoy the solo work uh, building part of your life? You know, it's funny. I, I enjoy both for different reasons. So I, I think, you know, I, I very much like the, let's call it the, the zero to one phase of building things. And I think, you know, building websites was going from zero to one as a solo, you know, individual creator, let's say. Um, and I would say where things like public speaking and teamwork and leadership come in is how do you go from zero to one as an organization, right? So when I started getting into like, hey, let's build a school club to solve this problem or, or this nonprofit group. Well, it's not about just me anymore, right? You have to interact with teammates. You have to sell other people on a vision for why you're starting this club. You have to start, you know, convincing other people in the ecosystem to support your vision. And so then to go from zero to one and build a team or an organization, then you have to develop all those other skills. And certainly today, like building a company, I would say I'm spending a lot more time um, building in a from a social interpersonal point of view and not so much from an individual point of view. But actually, even then, we'll get to this later, but when we started my company, SeamlessMD, with a very small team of you know three you know founders initially, a lot of going from zero to one was individual work and then now that you know we're at almost 40 people a lot of my work now is interpersonal communication teamwork etc yeah i completely agree i was surprised how much of building a startup and my startup was fairly small 10 people is managing people and how much time that took let's talk about hiring and let's look at it from a frame of structured decision-making versus intuition. Tell me your your weightage for each structure and intuition when hiring. And how do you go about selecting A, co-founders, and then B, your first hires? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, selecting co-founders, uh, I actually can't give you great advice on that because I went through a unique process where I, I didn't completely select my co-founder. So just for context, um, when we started SeamlessMD, we did it through a, an incubator called The Next 36. And the way that worked was individuals across Canada um, who were interested in getting involved in entrepreneurship could apply. Um, and then they would um, pick 36 people across the country into this program. And then at the time, at least, they would decide based on your prior interests and skill sets what group of three you should be in to start this journey together. Now you can imagine that um, because chemistry is so important, many of these groups of three did not work out. And I would say with my two co-founders, um, we were one of the few that actually survived as a team and, and went on to build a, a venture that's you know still around today, you know, about 10 years later. Um, so unfortunately, I I am not great at at telling you the right way to select um, co-founders. I will say one thing I learned though, and because actually the year before we started SeamlessMD and before I did this business incubator, I tried starting and I failed at building a completely different healthcare technology venture. And in that one, I had started it with two friends from med school. 
And I think one of the reasons why we weren't successful is because we were all clinical people. So our, our skill sets overlapped. None of us were technology people or could, could build a product. And I think one of the reasons why I did the business incubator was I wanted to find people who had skill sets that I didn't have around engineering, mm-hmm. um, technical and otherwise. And so for me, the big learning was, okay, you got to have complementary skill sets. You can't have too much overlapping effort or else you just can't move quickly enough. I completely agree. And that's advice I got and ignored from some mentors in my startup as well. Let's go back to high school. So you're a coder, uh, you're a a public speaker as well. It seems like the two paths I would see based on that would be software engineer or politician, (laughs) but you end up into medical school. Talk to me about the journey to med school. Was that always in the cards or how did you reach that decision? Yeah, I would say it was in the cards for a while. I mean, I grew up... um you know, really interested in, in medicine. I think to be fair, like I grew up in a, you know, I think a traditional Chinese household where like medicine was one of the, the career opportunities that, you know, was um, like recognized and, and admired and all that. I, I was certainly influenced by some of those, those ideas. Um, but I'll tell you, even when I was, um, you know, doing undergrad and I was preparing for medical school, doing my MCATs and my prereqs and all that kind of stuff, um, I still wasn't really sure if I wanted to do medicine. But I wasn't sure what else I wanted to do. So I applied and said, hey, I don't have a better plan. So I did. And I was lucky to, to get into medical school. But, you know, even in, in medical school, um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. You know, some folks know they want to go into family medicine or surgery or cardiology. Um, I thought I wanted to do neurology. And then I shadowed some neurologists and realized I wasn't as excited about as I thought I would be. Um, and where, where I got lucky was I had some great mentors who um, got me more interested in quality, safety, and patient experience. They took me under their wing. And so at UHN, I ended up doing some research in med school on preventing uh, readmissions after hospital discharge. And I became from there very passionate about that topic and quality and safety. And ultimately, trying to solve the readmissions problem led to me, um, you know, starting SeamlessMD, which we can get to later. Um, and so it's funny because um, I never planned to go into healthcare tech entrepreneurship, but if I hadn't done medical school, there's no, I would have kind of gone on this path in the first place. What advice do you have to medical students who want to follow in your footsteps? You know, I'll tell you, it's funny. There, there are a lot more medical students nowadays who are very interested in this atypical career path. The advice I always give folks in med school is like, number one, um, it's totally normal if, if you don't know what you want. You don't know what specialty you want. In fact, you might change your mind after you start it. So uh, there's no there's no sure thing. I always tell people the important thing is to follow your curiosity and see where that leads you. And that means if you get curious about something, read more about it, shadow do research on it, go to a conference, work on a project there. And either you'll find out that you actually really are curious about it and you'll keep doing more in it, or you'll realize that you don't like it and you can cross off your list, but just keep following your, following your curiosity. And that's what I did, right? Like I was curious about readmissions and then I was curious about startups and then, you know, like by chance, and, and by the way, it didn't always work out. Like I had a failed startup yeah. and then another one that that's still around today. And so um, if you follow curiosity, I feel like you'll get to a good place. And did you do a residency, Josh? 
I did not. So I actually, um, so I'd gotten into family medicine residency um, in Toronto. And what happened was that normally starts, you know, July 1st, right? Um, the incubator that I, I had started doing in my last year of med school for CMSMD, that incubator ran until the end of August. So originally my residency program said, okay, well, like just start September 1st. I said, great. Yeah. And then as we got to the end of August, they said, well, Josh, like, um, what do you want to do? Do you want to do like 50-50 time between residency and seamless? Do you want to do 90-10 time? They were incredibly supportive. But what I decided was that I didn't think I could do two things really well. And then I didn't want to do two things, yeah. you know, with, with that, you know, half effort. Um, and so I said, hey, you know what? I want to see where the seamless MD thing goes. How about we talk again in the year? And then, you know, maybe, maybe we'd be dead by then. Maybe it didn't work out or, or maybe yeah. I'll do something else. And then basically every year for several years, I would come back and they would say, well, Josh, are you coming back to residency? And I would say, ah, well, no, because I'm still, I still want to see where this is going. It's still growing. And then at some point, you know, they were so generous, like after five years, like they were like, Hey, Josh, we can't keep this annual thing going anymore. Are you going to come back or not? And I was like, I'm so grateful for all the opportunities you gave me, but I'm just so all in on this. There's no way I could, you know, do this part-time or, or yeah. anything. So there you go. That That is a fascinating answer and a very brave decision from my perspective. What advice do you have to yourself as a med student if you were to go back in time? Yeah, I don't know if there's too much I would change. I, I think one of the things I've come to believe is that um, my situation now is a result of all these compounding experiences, right? And so even if I think I could go back in time and optimize something, that actually might change the outcome in a way that may not have been yeah. uh, necessarily a good thing for me. I do think that being said, though, I do wish um, I'd spent more time probably learning other skill sets that would be relevant to what I'm doing now. So for example, you know, I I know enough technology stuff that I can speak to CMSMD, but I kind of wish I was more technical in some ways. I wish I had a better technical mind. And so I think going back, given that, like, I always believe that as you get older, your your schedule gets to do things gets smaller in terms of like your daily time window. I, I feel like I had more time back then to explore stuff. So I wish I had spent more time like learning more basic technical skills around like coding and development or just technical architectures because now I'm just like either too lazy or just too busy to yeah. have a more technical foundation. But I wish I spent more time learning about but technology back then. Do you think with the rise of chat GPT writing code to an extent, uh, poor code from what I know, is are the new coders people who are using no code tools or AI to write their code? Or what is the market like for software engineers of the future, you think? Yeah, I mean, it was either going to talk because I'm, I'm again, I'm not technical, so I don't really live in, in that world from a, a software development point of view. Um, I don't, I, I think it's likely, and I think people have used this phrase already where it's like, um, you know, chat GPT or, or AI in general is not going to, I think, replace a lot of what humans do, but I think mm -hmm. um, those who use it will have an advantage. So you might as well learn how it could, could benefit you. So I think to your point, there may be a lot of repetitive tasks that, um, similar AI tools could use to streamline development. Um, or I think probably one of the lower hanging fruits is if you're learning the fact that you can use something like, like ChatGPT to understand, you know, 
how should I code something or how should I troubleshoot this issue? And the fact that it can scan a lot of, you know, past data and language and actually help generate, well, here's, here's a framework or here's code that others have used to solve this problem. And the fact that you can like learn faster and improve your skills faster. I think that's probably the lower hanging fruit that people are already taking advantage of. Um, and then in some ways, to your point, some of these tools and like no code tools make producing software more accessible to the average person. So, you know, in the future, will people, how much code people have to know or what form will coding take could be very, very different. I do think people who have a sound technical understanding in mind will always have an advantage. So I think the best people in the development space will always have incredibly strong fundamentals so that they can design the technical world with as much detail as, as is possible. And those who don't have that technical foundation will probably have some limitations at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so I think it's still important, but I think you're right. I think it will make development more accessible to more people, um, whether you know code or or not. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I'll ask another question about chat GPT. For those who don't know, it recently passed the USMLEs or our board exam in the States and also a test by a Wharton MBA professor. Were you surprised by that? And my second part of the question is, there is a decline in the value of expertise in general, and then by default, a decline in the value of physician expertise. Do you think ChatGPT will exacerbate that decline? Yeah, so I'll take a step back first, and then I'll get into the specific GPT uh, example of the USMLE. So, I mean, if you think about decades ago, right, we had schools, and the big focus on school was we had to teach students knowledge, right? Because knowledge was what was powerful at the time. And now knowledge is at your fingertips. So now it's not as important that students go to schools, universities to learn facts because you can search for answers. So clinically, I don't have to know everything and up to date. I can look up up to date to find clinical information. Whereas maybe 200 years ago, I had to memorize all this information because it wasn't at my fingertips. So um, we've democratized access to knowledge. And so being able to make good judgment and clinical assessments and decision-making is far more valuable than just having knowledge. And so, you know, and then when I think about something like ChatGPT and it's able to synthesize this information and, you know, do more than just about knowledge, but maybe in some ways synthesize, you know, good insight with that knowledge, but even like the USMLE or some of these clinical exams, um, they're very often very straight. I would guess, again, I haven't read the USMLE, but a lot of very straightforward scenarios or very clear like solutions to questions. Whereas in the real clinical world, when you're making judgments where there's often imperfect information, you have to incorporate way more context than what's in a, you know, five sentence vignette. Um, you know, I think, you know, tools like ChatGPT are going to be helpful for us to maybe pull insight from the evidence or from data more quickly. But I think very often you still need that great clinical judgment that, um, so far, only a human can do. Mm -hmm. Now, I do think there's probably some point in the future where um, AI will be good enough that you can reach that. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen Star Trek, but um, in Star Trek, they have this like um, AI hologram doctor who's human-like okay. and and it, it looks and feels like a human physician. And they basically act as the doctor for people, for humans. Um could we get to that point? I think that's totally possible, but I don't. I think that's quite far away. But in the meantime, I don't think something like ChatGPT could replace that clinical judgment that's that can 
understand the complexity needed for real clinical care. But when you're talking about like these vignettes in a in a written exam, yeah, I'm not that shocked that it could score pretty well. Um, so uh, from what I'm getting at is um, there's a knowledge is not as valuable anymore because of the democratization of access, but the application of knowledge and decision-making is as valuable as ever. That being said, our testing in medical school, law school, different schools is still based on knowledge. It's based on recollection, memorizing facts. Should we move away from that testing? And if so, should we move more towards an OSCE-based scenario of testing? So I, I do think uh, it's hard for me to say like how much knowledge is sufficient or necessary, but you do need some foundational clinical or medical knowledge um, so that you even can be resourceful in looking up more information as needed. Um, so, I mean, we could probably debate how much of the detail currently be taught in medical school is necessary, but I, I do think some foundational, a significant amount of foundational knowledge is needed so that you can actually interpret data well and, and, and use it properly. And you're not starting from scratch with every clinical encounter. Um, but I do think that in the future, um, however, the clinical encounter changes, so like, let's say in the future, the clinical encounter is a situation where maybe you do have an AI assistant who is, you're able to have at your fingertips to access information or access predictive analytics about a patient or anything like that. Whatever that encounter looks like, that should probably be at some point what the OSCE is like. The OSCE shouldn't match the real clinical encounter. And if in the future we're relying on AI assistants to treat patients, then the OSCE at some point should evolve to match that. Um, and so as long as that I think is is similar enough, I think you know, we'll be doing medical education the right way. It's kind of like, I think about like, let's say, it's funny. I mean, think about like, let's call it like uh, cars and autonomous driving and all that, right? So you could argue at some point, maybe driver's licenses are obsolete because no one's driving anymore. And in, and at that point, the only people with driver's licenses are professional race car drivers. So that's still a sport or, or something like that. Um, but let's say in the meantime, we have a lot of AI assist in driving, then probably when you're doing like a in your driver's license right now, like they should actually expect and appreciate that you may be using an AI assistant driving and that might be the right thing to do. Like, can you use the AI properly? If not, you should get your license maybe at some point. I don't know. Um, but I think I think the real world should mimic the the educational world or vice versa. Yeah, this is an interesting debate where as AI does more and more of our work, at some point, we solely exist to offload liability from the AI and the patient. And when do you see that transitioning? And say we have the Star Trek version of uh, this AI physician and no human is involved, no human physician is involved. Where does the liability rest? On the AI, on the patient, or is there a shared liability model? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the... The analogy I tend to think about is like let's let's take medical imaging because that's probably the lowest one of the lowest hanging fruits when it comes to AI and and medicine, and so, you know, there's a question of well, like on the one hand, if everything was purely uh, a human assessment by a radiologist, and let's say there was a, a radiologist in error who was making countless errors in in their reports, well, then someone could say, well, this one human radiologist had a massively high error rate. If we remove that radiologist from the system, 
then we've gotten rid of the error. Or if we retrain them or, or they fix their problems, but no one else is affected. Like all the other radiologists are fine. Whereas if you had a, an algorithm, uh, an AI model for radiology that had errors, then every image is read incorrectly and, and the massive scale that impact is, is bad until you fix that problem. And I think that's where people get worried about AI thinking that, yes, benefits get scaled, but so do errors. The way I look at it is, is like, what is the total error rate or the total benefit? And so, for example, you know, even if an AI model and an imaging does have errors, but if it in aggregate has fewer errors, first of all, the error rate would be zero. Right. So I think people keep thinking that AI is going to be perfect. Well, humans are imperfect. The human radiology error rate is not 0%. I hope it's small, but it's not 0%. So, in the same way, to think that AI would be 0% is flawed thinking in the first place. It's even humans can't get to 0%. But if the total error rate from an AI is um, lower than the human error rate in aggregate, as close to 0% as possible, I think that's actually a good thing. And we, we should strive to get close to 0%. And if AI gets us closer, that's better. On the liability question, then the question I have is like, well, um, at the end of the day, the software is an assist, but at the end of the day, like the the healthcare system should own the outcome, right? So, for example, um, if we're the the system has to the healthcare system has to decide is the AI good enough or so much better than us that we shouldn't have humans looking at it at all, or to your point, should AI be an assist that just lets us do more at scale? And at the end of the day, it's like, and I don't know the legal stuff. So there's probably something in law that decides when, when liability passes off from a, a provider to technology. There's probably some precedent set in law. Yeah. And probably at the end of the day, both parties get, get, get sued or in trouble, to be honest. That's probably what really happens. And then they end up yeah. negotiating who takes, all the, who takes more blame than the other. Um, but I think ultimately, like the provider has to decide the level of risk they're comfortable with and how much confidence they have in in the yeah. AI. Um, but yeah, there's probably some legal presence there. That's a good question. Um, yeah, uh, generally, from what I've seen, it falls on the standard of care, which mm. is determined by what your peers would do, which is good and bad because it it sets a baseline for not practicing aggressive or risky medicine. But it also curbs innovation because any deviation from the standard of care by default is opening yourself up to malpractice. Right. So that basically if none of your peers are innovative or, or using AI in medical imaging, then the standard of care was not using AI. <laughs> yeah. Which which is uh it sounds silly when you say it, but I, I don't think that law will change anytime soon. Uh for better or worse. Uh, mostly for worse, I'd say. Yeah, and this is why my whole thing is that like people should focus more. I mean, I think maybe you're gonna get this anyways, but like our healthcare system needs to focus more on like, what are, what are the goals? What are the outcomes? And having clear accountability tied to those outcomes. And then based on that, the right innovation, the right tools, AI or not, will be pulled into the system to achieve those goals, right? So if, if there were certain targets set in the healthcare system where it was like, hey, like I'm making this up, but like, let's say there's a huge backlog in medical imaging, we need to we need to get more imaging done faster. And the healthcare system said, okay, well, the only way we could do that would be to invest more heavily in, in AI to accelerate reading images. Well, now you have an aligned incentive to actually innovate. Otherwise, if if the incentive was not to be more efficient, then like why are we expecting people to change? You know, everyone's, you know, everyone's pretty rational about their motivations. 
Yeah, I don't know if I want to get started on our healthcare system. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> I'll, I'll ask you one question. If you could change one thing about, and by our, I mean Ontario's healthcare system, what would it be? Oh, it would be exactly that. It would yeah. be about, um, we we talked for decades about um, shifting to a more um, performance-based healthcare system where reimbursement and funding is tied to outcomes, but it's been mostly talk, very little, very little progress. Um, you know, as much as I think in, in Ontario and Canada, we we like to think sometimes that we are, you know, it's quote unquote some ways better than our American counterparts in the healthcare system because we're, you know, completely for the most part, not completely, but most part publicly funded and they're more of a, a mixed system. Um, we both have our own challenges. And one of the things the the US healthcare system has done, I think better than us is they've been a lot more progressive on different um, reimbursement models and value-based care arrangements and at least trying to see what works and what doesn't. They've succeeded and failed in different ways in those models, but we've made very, very limited progress. And so we've been mostly talk, not very much action. Yeah. And I, my concern is that, you know, we know our population is living longer, our, our, our elderly population is growing. Um, there's also in general, you know, probably going to be population decline happening around the world. And, and, and so our healthcare workforce is going to get smaller and COVID that's caused all this burnout and um, poor, even worse working environments in healthcare is causing people to leave. And so what you're having is you have a growing elderly population with complex, you know, medical diseases, and then you have a shrinking healthcare workforce exacerbated by, by COVID now and this shrinking healthcare workforce is not going to be able to care for this massively elderly um, growing population in, in Ontario, Canada, around the world. And so if you think we're in a crisis today, it's going to get far, far worse in the coming decades. And unless we act now to not only do payment reform, but re-engineer how we do healthcare delivery, get more people back into healthcare, it's, I'm deeply concerned about the future of healthcare delivery in this country. Um, and I think there's not enough action being taken to try and and change how we deliver care and pay for it. And if that doesn't happen, like I just fear for like 10, 20 years from now, what's going to happen. Why do you think that is? Why is not enough action being taken? What is the is uh what is the missing piece of the puzzle here? So I think that the reality for us, especially since healthcare is primarily publicly funded, is it does start from the top with policy and government that sets um, you know, the performance expectations, the metrics that matter, how the reimbursement is done. Um, and it takes a lot of courage and conviction to do things very differently. I mean, I, I think to be honest, like if you did a lot of payment reform, you're probably going to upset a lot of physicians in particular who, you know, let's be honest, when you're paid on a fee for service basis where performance doesn't really matter besides volume, it's yeah. kind of a pretty good situation to be in, right? I mean, in any other industry, let's say like, let's say in business or anything else, if you don't perform, if you don't, if your organization can't hit targets, you could go out of business, right? In healthcare, we, we tolerate so much. And in fact, we are, frankly, I think our, I think your highest performing providers and organizations that are delivering the best care at the lowest cost, yeah. you should probably be paying them better. And the ones who aren't, you should, you should be paying them less and create incentive structure where it's, where better performance is rewarded. Um, but we don't have that here. It's, it, there's, there's, not, there's a lot less of a meritocracy in, in healthcare delivery. And, and I frankly, like 
for most people, that's probably a pretty good thing, maybe. Like who 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 wants the added pressure of having to uh, achieve better health outcomes? You know? Yeah. I think uh, as this idea gets confused sometimes about democracy and meritocracy, and there are different things. The best ideas are not often the most popular ones mm-hmm. or the most democratic ones. The one thing I will add to the value-based care, and and I'll I'll go based on Adam Grant's framework. Um, I'll, I'll add him to my defensive corner. Um, is the way we measure value should be the process, not solely the outcomes, because poor processes can create good outcomes. And if we solely focus on the outcomes, we incentivize perverse processes. And weight loss is a good example where if you incentivize just a strict BMI, people will starve themselves. You incentivize exercise, healthy eating, um, so I'll, I'll just I'll just leave that as a statement. This is a good point to get into. Is medicine a calling or a job? And if it's a calling, how do you know? This is probably one where I I, I probably disagree with some folks. And 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 you know, to be fair, I'm actually not practicing. So take what I say with a grain of salt. There's a point. Maybe 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 if I was practicing, I have a very different opinion. I think I think when most people go into a healthcare profession, medicine or otherwise it very much starts off for a lot of people as a calling, right? You go in because you're trying to make a difference. You're trying to take, you know, make an impact on patient care or the healthcare system or something else. And I think what unfortunately happens is the reality of healthcare medicine is that, man, is it, is it frustrating? Is it stressful? Can you get burned out? Working conditions have gotten worse, especially the last few years. And so I think it's very easy for folks in, in healthcare medicine to, and understandably so, get jaded, get unhappy, dissatisfied, um, sometimes more recently want to leave. And and so I think there's a lot of work that has to be done, an important work that has to be done to turn it back into a calling and, and, and make it stay a calling once you're in it. Um, and and because I, I think it's it's such an important part of society that we can't afford to like not only can we not afford to lose such great people from the healthcare profession because we need it, we have to find a way to recruit more people. Like I, I actually think um, the government, for example, and, and healthcare organizations need to do more to actually like recruit. Like we should be recruiting our best and brightest to go into healthcare more than we do now. Like we need it. But to your point, we have to fix the culture. We have to make it a calling again and keep it a calling. And part of that has to do with like improving working conditions. Some of them might have to be do with like improving the way we we do like reimbursement and do it well. Um, part of them, you know, might be maybe there's more training that we have to do that we're not doing. Um, I mean, I don't have all the solutions, but I think the problem that I believe exists is the fact that there's a culture issue um, that has to be improved and fixed. So that way it is a calling again and it stays a calling. Uh, I... I'm not sure if I 100% agree with that, but I, I get your point, and I think we need more people in medicine. That's as clear as ever. Let's talk about seamless MD. Talk to me, and feel free to go into as much detail as you'd like to, about how you went from idea to landing your first client. Yeah, definitely. So just to give a bit more background context to it, so the initial idea of seamless MD was um, what if we could build a technology platform to um, monitor a patient after they left hospital, you know, monitor their symptoms, how they're doing, 
and then allow care team to catch those issues earlier and prevent something like a readmission. Now, when I first started um, working on this with my team, my initial interest was in preventing readmissions for patients with complex chronic diseases. So think heart failure, COPD, because that's actually what my research was in. So that's the world that I knew. So then when I started talking to people in internal medicine, like my mentors, my mentors, colleagues, and all that, none of them were interested in the idea. They were like, ah, no, this isn't going to work. Or like, you know, it's not that interesting to me personally. I kept getting a lot of rejections. And then one day, one of those individuals said to me, you know, Josh, you should go talk to surgeons. They are more tech savvy. They, they're more innovative. They like this kind of stuff. You just make it more traction there. I said, okay, I'm kind of disappointed here of that, but I got nothing to lose at this point. Everyone's just rejected us. And so I started talking to surgeons and they started saying, oh yeah, Josh, come work with us. Like we have readmission problems too. And yeah, we are more innovative. And I said, okay, that's kind of interesting. Um, and actually, you know, when we first started finding surgeons, one of the things that I did was I would go on PubMed and I would type in surgery readmissions and I would, I would find papers about it. And I would look up who wrote those papers. And I remember um, one of the first three people that I, that I cold emailed um, one of the first three, his name was um, Dr. David Berger. At the time, he was the vice chair of surgery at Bayer College of Medicine in, in Houston, Texas. And he had written a paper on preventing surgical readmissions. And in that paper, he had, he, they, had they came up with um, a framework for like, these are the symptoms that we'd want to monitor after a colorectal surgery and potentially prevent readmissions. And I emailed him and said, hey, you know, like I'm working on this idea for an app you know, and your paper got me thinking, well, what if we just use an app to, you know, check in on those symptoms with the patient, you know, could that be a cool idea? And then he responded to me. And then we just started talking and eventually, um, Bayer College of Medicine ended up becoming our very first pilot site. And they actually did a study with us with the very first horrible version of seamless MD. So you can imagine the results of that study were not at all uh, fantastic, but it was a great first step and, and a great first partner to, to get something going. And how did you move from there to your second, third, fourth client? Was it more word of mouth, more cold emailing? And what advice do you have to founders trying to sell into health systems? Yeah, great question. The first the first handful were all um, cold outreach and networking. So it was a mixture of cold emailing, um, hospitals, um, going through our networks, like me asking my mentors, hey, do you know... Like, who do you know, let's say, what surgeons do you, who do you know that you think this might be up their alley? And then everyone that you meet, asking them again, asking those people, oh, hey, who else do you think might be interested in this idea? And by the way, we still use those um, approaches today to try and like build out awareness and networks. But especially back then when we have like zero proof points, zero clout or anything uh, for us, it, no, one, no one's looking for us. So we're always having to reach out and look for people ourselves. And how did you monetize your service one thing i look for um, in my angel investing is a clinical roi and a financial roi and a lot of founders i find they have a very clear clinical roi but their financial roi uh, needs some work so you've found considerable success and i was just wondering you know how were your conversations with your first uh, customers or buyers and what financial roi did you demonstrate yeah, I'll answer your question with the story, then I'll, I'll get more specific. So it's a great point. And I think one of the things that I've learned is that 
ROI is viewed differently by different stakeholders in a system. And oftentimes I think people in the same system um, have miscommunication internally about what actually matters. So I'll give you an example. So, you know, we had a, a partner in Ontario years ago where they said, hey, Josh, come bring Seamless here and do like a, a pilot, you know, study with us. And I, we guarantee you that if you can help us, like physicians, reduce readmission significantly, for sure the hospital CEO would buy into this and we can turn this into like a real commercial contract. And of course, like you believe these things, right? So we go, we implement it. We reduce readmissions by over fifty percent. We present Did you have this. a contract before you implement it, or was it more word of, a verbal contract? We no, we did have a contract, so we still have because we're we you know we're a software platform. We're managing PHI, et cetera. We have to be secure. And we have to be contract with the hospital, but it was more that I think from their point of view, like hey, once we prove it, like we can go to the hospital leadership to sustain and grow this even further beyond the initial um, scope. And so you know, they, they knew they were using it, they were using it, um, but it was confined to like a very like defined group or department in the hospital. So then we, we measure the results, we cut readmissions um, by over 50%. And then together we co-present the results to the CEO of the hospital. And the CEO says like, wow, like these are amazing results. But, but given how, you know, global funding at the time worked in Ontario with hospitals, he said, actually, Josh, you know, if you reduce these readmissions and you save me costs in the readmissions, you know, the government um, will actually think I don't need as much money in following years budgets. So actually does it, this doesn't really save me money. It just means the government thinks I need less. And so there's not a real financial incentive for me to scale this out, even though he's like, yes, this clearly would reduce readmissions further. And for me, that's a light bulb moment being like, wait, so hold on. Like, this whole time we assumed, you know, based on what we were told by the physicians that if we just improve this outcome metric, the, the CEO will see the value. What we really should have been doing was talking to everyone, not just the physicians, but also the CEO and the other executives to understand, well, like what ROI do you need to see? Because, because frankly, the, yeah. the, the executives are the ones paying for this. And I think, and then what you guys over time is that there can be a disconnect in what they actually want to see results on and what a, what a clinical person. And so now we have to satisfy multiple parties. Like we have to improve, I'll put it this way, I'll give you an example. Like, you know, quality and clinical people love seeing how seamless can reduce hospital life of stay. And then some of the folks in like the finance side view that as an opportunity to increase throughput and bed capacity for the hospital. You know, related related topics, but kind of different still. Yeah. Who do you find? First of all, that must have been incredibly frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> the, the ROI from your point person's perspective is so vastly different from the CEO's perspective. So I'm I, I'm sorry you had that experience because I, I can't imagine being, especially early on, and you're you're writing on this contract to an extent emotionally. Uh, I, I'm sorry you went through that, Josh. Oh, that's okay. Well, I'll tell you, the, the biggest concern I have is what happens is you have all these frontline clinicians and staff who put their own blood, sweat, and tears into this. And despite it being successful from a, a clinical outcomes point of view, the fact that it wasn't valued by the system. And and then that means they're, they're like demotivated to maybe improve quality in the future, or perhaps now they don't believe in digital health because they had this one experience where they put all this effort into it, it worked, did what was intended, and it still didn't matter. That's where I get more concerned for the system. Yeah. 
And this is different than the states where readmissions are not paid for within 30 days. Is that uh, an accurate statement I made there? It, and, it's and, it's a bit more complicated than that. So it's that for certain, um, depending on the payer. So for, for we're, we're Medicare or CMS, the payer, which is the government in the U.S., and that covers um, folks who are over 65 years old. They have certain conditions like heart failure, COPD, um, et cetera, where um, if you if the hospital exceeds a certain expected readmission rate, then they get penalties for it. But technically, not not every readmission in the U.S. is being penalized, so it, 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 details matter. But I'll tell you, even in the U.S., part of the challenge is that there are some executives in hospitals who are kind of gaming the system, right? So I've had conversations with hospitals where they might say, you know, Josh, you know, I want you to help us bring our readmission rate from like 15% to let's say 10%, but we don't want you going lower than that because at some point, if it's lower than that, then the, then our financial model shows that we actually start losing money. So there, there are some strange complexities in, in even in the US where they have these incentives where like, because there are some perverse, like reverse incentives, they actually want you to only improve it to a certain extent sometimes. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the pay writer model outlined in Andreessen's uh, recent paper where the insurance company is the provider? So the incentives are clear where they want to reduce costs to increase their profits. Now, I know their profits are capped currently in the States. Is that the same in Canada? And then what are your thoughts on the pay writer model? Yeah, so I, I don't know too much about the details of that and, and how it um, relates to health stood in Canada because you, you have to think in some ways the public healthcare system here is, I guess, not quite prepared. So, so in the public provider model, and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm, I'm not as technically sound on this, but I, I assume in the provider model, usually the payer also owns the care delivery, right? So if I'm a payer, I'm I'm the payer, I'm the, ins I'm the insurance provider, but I also own the hospital's the physician practices and, and the whole care delivery. So it's fully integrated. Whereas let's say in Ontario, the government publicly funds healthcare, but technically a lot of the, the uh, care providers here, like the hospitals are not, ten, maybe not technically, you don't technically work for the government as a family practice, you're your own entity. So I guess you don't really have that, that here. Um, it sounds very good in theory, right? I'm guessing there are some clear limitations that I haven't really dug into or, or just yet. Um, but I think it comes down to like, if you have the right leadership in the organization, I think if you have great leadership um, that's doing things right, it could work very, very well. I suspect if you have bad leadership, yeah. it may not be so great. It may not lead to great outcomes for patients. Um, are they, and here's the other thing too, like, are they going to serve every patient in the region? Are they going to hand select patients, right? Part of the benefit of the Ontario healthcare system is that like everyone gets served right? No one's cherry picking their patients, you know, no one's excluding patients, you know, from insurance coverage or anything. So I think in the ideal world, great leadership, fully integrated care delivery and funding model, and you serve every patient in the region so that you have to deliver good care to everyone. Sounds good in theory. Yeah, I think it could work in uh, certain verticals and pockets. And I wonder if primary care should be more uh, direct primary care with direct private pay and oncology, surgery, more expensive procedures should be covered through a government insurance plan. Um, it seems like the opposite will happen, to be frank with you, where 
more expensive services will, will become privatized and primary care will remain public. Uh, but no one ever went bankrupt from $50, but they did from $100,000 surgery. Um, was kind of my rebuttal there. What are your thoughts on private care in Canada? Is it needed? Should it exist? Will it help alleviate our backlog and improve access? And by private care, I mean true private care where patients are paying for care, not the independent surgical centers, which is a whole other uh, conversation. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a great question. There's a lot of debate online right now. And I think, you know, the trying to alleviate the surgery backlog with more private surgical facilities is a really hot topic lately. My perspective on this tends to be that I think I think it's been an oversimplification in the dialogue on social media to say that either private is always bad or to say um, public public is always good. I think the right answer ends up being somewhere between. For me, the important thing is, you know, do we have clarity on what the goals are for the healthcare system, right? For, for me, right, if I were, you know, in charge, it'd be like, how do we get better access, better quality, lower cost, right? Big picture, details need to be worked out. Um, but for me, like, if certain providers or provider groups can deliver better care to lower cost, um, you know, they should be paid better and allowed to be care for more patients, right? And we talked about this earlier today. And if, if you know, achieving that system um, of results, there's a way to do that better with some aspect of like privately, you know, paid for healthcare, then I think the province should be open-minded to well, well, what, what would that look like and what's the impact? But I do think it's an oversimplification to say, well, in every possible situation in the world, private healthcare is no place or, or, or to argue like the opposite that it, we need, you know, this should always be the case for everything. Everything should be private. Like I think both are both extremes are probably the wrong answer. And so I think people just need to be open-minded and actually have a dialogue because I think we need to focus on what the goal is. And then everything else in between is just different tools or mechanisms to hit, to hit the goal. But being closed-minded to tools, I think is just, um, is, is, is missing an opportunity to improve the healthcare system. I agree. It, it's too bad that mentioning private healthcare is a political kryptonite in Canada. Um, but it, it seems like it could help definitely in some ways. And there is nuance and complexity here, which are hard to find in today's world often. Yeah. And my thing is, that if you are a very key stakeholder in how healthcare is delivered and organized, you have a duty to explore all the reasonable options to improve healthcare here, whether it's public or private or something else. Like you may not end up deciding to go down that route, but to ignore the options, um, I, I, that does not seem like you're you're being responsible to like patients and, and the healthcare system. One thing I hear from founders uh, often is it's really hard to raise money from Canadian VCs. It's much easier from American VCs. Just talk to me a bit about your experience raising uh, money for your startup and um, did you find that to be true? So when it comes to raising money, like I think what I've learned is that raising money is like selling a product, except the product is your company share. So it's very much a sales process. Um, and in the same way that like I tell like founders, hey, if you can get one customer, you can get like five, you can get five, you can get 10, you can get 10, you can get a hundred. It's the same with like raising capital. If you can get like one investor to believe in you and assuming they're not crazy, 
you can get five. If you can get five, you can get 10 and so forth. You know, when we raised our um, seed round back in, I think it was 2015, we raised 1.1 million. Um, it was tough. I actually had this whole spreadsheet of every investor I talked to. And most most that I, and by the way, like a lot of it I did was just code outreach. I mean, that, that's a whole other topic we can get into if you want, but like I did not have a bunch of investors that I got intros to or, or a bunch of inbound interest. Most of my investors I got through just cold outbound contacting, you know, going down LinkedIn, going down AngelList, Google, uh, asking. What was the message you're sending them? Uh, I was saying, I had to look it up, but it was probably something like, um, like something like, hey, like, I'm a physician turned digital health entrepreneur, a few lines on like traction, raising capital. Like I thought this might be up your alley because you did X, like you invested in this company or et cetera. Um, and actually, I'll tell you, there were two profiles that worked out really well for us. One was um, physicians who had angel invest in other companies. Mm-hmm. Um, the second profile that was good was actually... Um, people who were part of hospital foundation boards because clearly like they, they, you know, were very successful um, financially and donated a lot to hospitals and, and therefore like that's why they're heavily involved in the foundation, but they clearly care about healthcare. And so um, we had a, a number of like physician investors or, and some hospital foundation board member investors who were both excited about the company from a mission point of view. And so I think part of it is figuring out, well, what is the right ideal investor profile for a company? And it varies. This is just what worked for us. Um, But I can tell you, like, more than 90% of the investors who actually met with me, so a lot lot wouldn't even meet with me, of like the, you know, who knows how many, over 100 probably that I I met, more than 90% rejected us after meeting me. And so people don't realize, like, at least for companies like ours, like how many investors I had to speak to to get to yeses. And why did they say no? Oh my gosh. Back then, I mean, probably so, so many good reasons to say no back yeah. then. <laughs> you know, we had limited traction, right? I mean, I mean, you think digital health is like, digital health is still, I think, relatively early now, right? It's gotten a lot better in the last years, but it's still early now. Back in 2015, I can tell you, like, it was tiny. Like, yeah. there, weren't, there weren't a lot of, like, besides the epics of SARS and Meditics of the world, there were no other major healthcare like it success stories not many at the time um we had very limited traction right we didn't have you know all that many probably case studies or anything so even back then most people were investing in the vision the team and the mission a lot of people don't want to invest in that they want traction they want data you know what made you successful because the idea to me isn't particularly novel, which means it's the team, the execution, the grit, the perseverance that made it a success. Do you think that's an accurate representation? And why did you think others failed at doing this? Or why did your biggest competitors fail? Yeah, great question. I think a couple of things. And I think part of it is is how we've chosen to differentiate. So when people ask me, well, like what makes Seamless MD different? Um you know, investors want to hear about companies that have some unique moat, maybe like a network effect or, or something else like that. But my differentiation for the companies is the same as what, I, as what I tell investors and customers, which is we choose to differentiate in ways that minimize friction to adoption. Because as you know very well in healthcare, 
it's easy to build the technology. It's very hard to get adoption of new technology. And so, for example, for us, it was investing early on in things like integrations with the major EHRs. It was things like um, helping our customer partners continue to build out the, the largest data set of evidence in the industry to give confidence to clinicians that this can work in the healthcare setting. Um, it's finding better and better best practices to train the staff on. And how do you get patients and families adopting this novel technology? And so none of that is like the sexy network effects or moats that an investor cares about. It was yeah. all about how do we get better adoption and success with our clinical partners? That's what our customers value. They don't care about network effects. They want stuff that works that patients use that drive outcomes. And so I think the fact that we really focus on how do we deliver results and minimize friction to adoption that's what stood out where a lot of our competitors are focused on like, oh, I'm going to like integrate with like our platform with like Uber or yeah. we're going to do some fancy AI that doesn't really improve something for like the patient outcome. But we want to say that we have AI, like who cares about, like, I don't care about that stuff. I want to actually drive value and make adoption easier. I think that makes a big difference. And so our focus is very clear. And I think that shows in our team construction. So about a quarter of our team actually comes from a clinical background of some sort from pharmacy or they're from uh, a dietitian or a health communication specialist. You look at all of our, our typical competitors historically, it was mostly like engineers, business people, like very little clinical people involved. And then that shows in how they interact with customers and providers. There's a disconnect there. That is an invaluable tip. And I, I completely agree with that. Josh, would you rather have a life full of many successes or chase outrageous goals with massive failures? You know, I think for me, those two are not really like mutually exclusive. So for example, I think a lot of the goals we have for, for building CMSMD are in some ways outrageous, or maybe back then, like even some things that we've done now back then felt outrageous. But along the way, we've had a lot of both many successes and many failures um, throughout our journey. And so I think for me now, it's about like, let's go for really ambitious goals, but we have to celebrate like the many successes along the way. Um, yeah, that's what's worked out well for us. What's the end goal for you, Josh? Are you, are you living life in the now, being mindful of everything? Are you still chasing your next goal? And what is what does 90-year-old Josh want to have accomplished in this life? So um, this topic reminds me of a, a great talk that I saw um, from a gentleman named Jordan Banks. Jordan Banks used to be the, the managing director of Facebook Canada. And he had this great slide in one of his talks about career journeys. And he talked about how, you know, when he looked back, like, 10 years ago at the time. And if you had asked him 10 years before, like, Hey, like, what do you think you'd be doing 10 years from now? It was, I think it was something like, Oh, I'm going to be like a lawyer or something and a firm and all that. What happened in reality, he zigzagged from like, I think it was law. Then he went to like work for like, it was like eBay or something about like Facebook Canada. Like he had no plans to go into like technology. Right. But he kept himself open-minded and curious and, you know, accidentally found his way into a career that he absolutely loved. And so his whole point, which I agree with, is that humans are very bad at predicting the future for ourselves. And so I think for me, I stopped trying to think about like five or 10 year goals and horizons. And I tried to focus more on like 
what am I curious about? What excites me? And living in that moment, knowing that as long as I'm open-minded to great opportunities, I'm going to end up in a great place, even though I have no idea today what that's going to look like. So for example, when we, when I, when I got into like medical school, like, did we plan to start CMSMD? No. Right. I thought maybe I do something entrepreneurial 10, 20 years on the line, but this was never planned. Um, and so when I think about like success in the future, like I don't know what that holds. I do know what matters to me is impact. So when we think about seamless and for example, you know, our biggest goals around like, how do we get this into more clinical areas to more health systems into the hands of more patients? And how do we support not only, you know, um, acute care, but how do we support at some point primary care and community care, the whole continuum. And so for us, our, our goals are really centered around how do we accelerate impact? And if we do those things, I think a lot of great outcomes will come along the way, whether it's financial or, or clinical or otherwise. Um, but yeah, like I don't, I don't plan in 10 year horizons. So I, I can't see that well into the future. It just, I'm not that good. So. I think that's a good answer. And too many of us get caught up in creating goals and then trying to chase them for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I think part of it too is even as a company, I think sometimes, you know, we we set goals and then we realize it wasn't really a good goal to set. It's okay to reset, you know, or a perspective on it and change the goal. I mean, you don't want to like sandbag and like, you know, change the goal because you 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 didn't perform well, but it's more like the big picture goals. Sometimes they're wrong and we should change them. Do you think healthcare is a good fit for the traditional venture model where they're looking for an exit maximum 10 years? Or do you think venture should extend their timeline or fund horizon to 20 years to fit healthcare? Yeah, so I, I think the way I look at it now is, well, if, I'll back up. So first of all, like most companies should not be venture back in the healthcare or not. Like I think I think we've seen the last like several years now that there are probably too many companies that got venture funding that frankly probably should never be venture back in the first place. And I think now that we're seeing the great reset in, in venture capital, which which is which is probably healthy and and it was important that we we end up doing that. And I think probably that is emphasized even more in healthcare when given how healthcare works, there's probably even fewer companies that should be venture backed in healthcare compared to, to like the general like technology market, let's say. Um, I mean, if you look at the biggest financial successes as companies, right? Like the biggest companies by far for the most part are not like, let's call it healthcare technology companies, right? Like your biggest health technology company, you know, maybe, or let's say in software, you could say, let's say it's Epic or something, right? And if you compare that to the size of like a Microsoft or a Google or an Apple, like it's not even close, right? It's never going to be as big as those, right? So when you think about it, if you were going to try and go into venture, healthcare in general is probably not the industry you want to be in. But there's clearly some investors who just like are wanting to have an impact in healthcare because they love the industry. They love the impact in the same way. Like I tell founders like, hey, like if my goal was to build to get the best financial outcome for myself no one should ever go in healthcare. Like you, you're more likely to build a much bigger financially successful company outside healthcare than in healthcare. So whether you're investing in healthcare or trying to build a company in healthcare, if your primary goal is to get the best financial return, 
you just shouldn't be in healthcare. It makes no sense as an investor or, or, or an entrepreneur. Part of the reason you're doing it is because you care about the industry and you're passionate about it and whatnot. And so then you just have to incorporate that thinking into your decision-making. That's not to say there aren't venture-backable things in healthcare. It's just, there's probably a lot fewer of them, or even like the potential exit sizes will never be as great as, you know, consumer markets or something else. Yeah, I completely agree. The reason I stick to healthcare for investing is A, I have industry expertise. B, I can actively help my founders with contract sales and give them whatever experience I have. Um, and see, I want to make an impact. I, I'll plug a book here, Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Mm-hmm. I think it's a book everyone should read. And it talks about how your financial decisions are not completely based on maximizing returns and being rational. And emotion has a big part of them, for better or worse. It's not worth fighting that part of it. It's better to embrace it and then realize that we make emotional decisions and accept that. This has been a, a great pleasure, Josh. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I hope we can have a part two someday. You got it, uh, Rashad. Thank you so much. I had a great time on, on your show. Thank you for the opportunity. Where can people find you, Josh? Yeah, you can find me um, on Twitter at Joshua P L I U. Awesome. Thank you.